Hi, I'm Jennifer Carraher, and this is Unfinished Truths. From misattributed parentage and assisted reproductive technologies to made or chosen families, these are stories of and by people who gain truth through knowledge and want to share that truth with you. As David Foster Wallace said, the truth will set you free, but not until it's finished with you. And welcome to episode four of Unfinished Truths. Today, I have the honor of speaking with Dr. Greg Markway, who is a clinical and forensic psychologist from Jefferson City, Missouri. Five years ago, he began a quest to find his grandfather's origins. His grandfather was born in New York City and was dropped off at the New York Foundling Asylum. At the age of five, his grandfather rode the orphan train to rural Missouri, where he was taken in by the Markway family. Through DNA testing and considerable research, Greg uncovered his grandfather's fascinating story and that of his biological family. Greg founded the Facebook group Orphan Train DNA, where he helps other orphan train descendants search for their own history. He also has a blog where he writes about orphan train history and genealogy, markwayblog.com. Along with his wife, Barbara, who is also a psychologist, they have authored three books. I really appreciate you agreeing to do this. It's super nice of you. There's a hidden history here. Yeah, I'll say there definitely is. My grandfather, I, I was very close to him growing up, and then he died suddenly when I was about 11 years old. And I've always been really curious about his history. Um, I knew growing up that he had come from New York to central Missouri on the orphan train. It was almost like... Um, a thing of pride in my family. I know when my father would talk about it. Um, but I really didn't understand what that meant. Um, uh, but all I knew is he came from New York to central Missouri on the orphan train. So as a kid, I assumed that meant that his parents had died and he had gone to the asylum and then eventually came to Missouri where he found a new family. Mm -hmm. um, there were several times at various points in my life, I, I'm now 63, there are various times in my life where I wanted to find more information, but I didn't really know how. I had written the family home seeking information, and essentially all they could tell me was that he had been there, and then he went to Missouri where he was adopted by the Markway family. Over the years, I found out that one of my sisters had written the Foundling Asylum several times. I had a brother who had done the same thing, and I had at least one cousin who had written them. So all of us were seeking information. We all felt some sort of drive to find more information about our grandfather. I think there are also, just for me personally, it's it was like there was a missing piece of my own history by mm -hmm. not knowing more about my grandfather's. I can't fully explain that, but I just wanted to know more. Where did he come from? Um, what was the rest of the story of my own family? So what age was your grandfather when he went to the foundling hospital? It, my grandfather was dropped off at the foundling when he was just a few days old. Okay. Um, so he went there as an infant and he came to Missouri when he was five years old. That was in okay. 1901. Quite some time. Did he ever know anything about his history, about his family of origin, like his biological family? Growing up, he knew nothing. Hmm. Um, but I have since learned that he always had a drive to find out more. Um, I had heard stories from my mother, my grandfather's daughter-in-law, that my grandfather had gone back to New York at some point trying to find his mother. And it, as a psychologist now, I find it interesting. He was looking for his mother. He wasn't looking for his father. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd heard rumors that he may have found her, or at least he found out something about her. Um, I, I what nobody exactly knew for sure what the story was. And it's interesting, after about five years of searching and finding some information myself, 
just in this past year, I found out that my grandfather had discovered who his mother was. Mm -hmm. um, a, another family member, a generation above me, died recently, and she had a collection of artifacts from my grandfather. And in that collection was a letter from the foundling telling him who his mother was. Oh, that's fascinating. And he never d disclosed that to anyone else in the family? He disclosed it to some people. Mm -hmm. um, so I had one cousin who knew this, and I believe my aunt knew this. He lived with my aunt for a period of time um, in his older years, and he was very close to her. But my father never knew this information. Mm -hmm. So I find that interesting as well. But I had found through research and a lot of work with DNA testing, I had found the woman that was named as his mother or the family named as his mother. Mm -hmm. um, or do you feel comfortable saying what that family name is or? Uh, yes, his mother um, was a woman named Abby Doyle. Um, and I feel like I have almost at least written one version of the family story as to what may have happened. Um, Abby grew up in um, Western Massachusetts and her father is an immigrant family. Her father fought in the Civil War and was injured in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. She was the youngest member of her family and her father died when she was very young. I don't know exactly what happened to her after that. I found some records of her mother going to work in a factory. Um, and I've also discovered that Abby clearly was very close with an aunt and uncle um, in Fall River, Massachusetts, and she spent a lot of time there. So I suspect they may have taken her in as a mm -hmm. child. Um, Abby at one point had gone to New York, uh, to New York City. And she was training to be a nurse herself. And she had gotten pregnant. And I found records of her going back to Massachusetts and then going back to New York, kind of going back and forth for a period of time during her pregnancy. And she gave birth at Misericordia Hospital in New York City, uh, which was in Manhattan. And it was a a uh, Catholic ho hospital that primarily served the destitute. Mm -hmm. And after giving birth, a few days later, she took my grandfather to the foundling asylum. I originally, you know, I didn't know how he ended up at the asylum, but the letter my grandfather received from the foundling home said that she personally dropped him off and to me, I had a different feel for what happened. I know my grandfather very much felt abandoned by his mother. Mm -hmm. But when I look back at it many years later, you know, myself having more emotional distance from things, it struck me that she took him there. She did not just leave him at the hospital. And to me, that suggested that she personally was seeing to it that he was going to be cared for. Mm -hmm. I wonder if just along these lines, if you talk a little bit about like at that time and the, the time that this was happening, what was going on with the, you know, because I'm presuming this was at the same time that the placing out and the um, like the sort of humanitarianism as they were calling at the time, you know, that's now the relationship with the modern foster system was just coming to be. Um, it sounds like he wasn't in that, you know, that wasn't quite what was happening with him. It's not as if he was like removed from his family. Um, but in fact, she made the conscious choice to do that. Um, but could you just talk a little bit about what was happening like socially at that time? Yes, the, um, you know, starting in the, you know, 1860s, um, 
there really was no foster care system in the United States. There were orphanages or other mm -hmm. private agencies that might take kids in, but the extent of you know any government oversight of foster care was pretty non-existent at the at the time uh, homeless kids were seen as a problem they were pretty much seen as akin to criminals and in terms of babies without homes without families babies were often sent to prisons to be cared for by women in prison. Um, and if you think back, there was no infant formula. So pretty much abandoned babies in, you know, the mid to late 1800s, it was pretty much they were going to die. Yeah. And in many respects, the beginning of uh, trying to take care of abandoned babies uh, the main goal was to provide them with an easier death. It wasn't even assumed that they would live. And so there were there were a lot of things going on culturally. In the East Coast, there were uh, huge amounts of immigration. If, at the beginning of the 1800s, New York was a city of about 40,000 people. Mm -hmm. And by the end of that century, it was over a million and a half people and the majority of them living in poverty um, and with illness and disease, many parents died. So right. children were left without anyone to care for them. And that was part of the development of um, child care agencies. There was the Children's Aid Society uh, started by Charles Loring Brace, a mm -hmm. Protestant minister. And he first came up with the idea of orphan trains to take these kids out of the disease and, you know, filth of the city and ship them off to, you know, farms with fresh air. And he had the idea he'd be shipping them off to find Christian families to uh, raise them as their own. Uh, the New York Foundling Home followed and they operated somewhat differently. Uh, Children's Aid focused more on uh, kids that were found on the street living homeless. Um, the Foundling Home started with the idea that they were going to take care of abandoned babies. Um, it was striking to me in my research that uh, New York police statistics, you know, they would report on the number of crimes, the number of murders, various things. And one of the things they counted in their statistics was the number of babies found dead in the street. It was so mm -hmm. common that they actually had it as a statistical category. Um, the, the New York foundling, um, it still exists today in you know various incarnations, but it was developed by as a Catholic agency where babies were going to be cared for by nuns. And they always had the idea that they were somehow going to then place them in families. The New York foundling actually developed its own foster care system where not all babies stayed in the institution. They would send them to live with families, uh, with women who could nurse the babies, and they monitored their care, and then eventually they would place them out with families who would adopt them. And I'm curious, was this, I don't know, like the background of your family, but was this similar, I mean, like, so Grace's idea of the orphan trains and then placing these children with families, was it typically, I know it was a large, like Scottish and Irish population at that time, and you were saying that they would place them with, you know, Christian families. So we're talking like typically Catholic families, I'm guessing. Is that correct? It's Brace specifically in the Children's Aid would place them with Protestant families. Mm -hmm. And the Foundling Home would place with Catholic families. So there actually was some competition between the two agencies. And they each saw themselves as saving the souls of these kids and then sending them to families who could raise them where they would uh, you know, participate in the appropriate faith, I guess I would call it. Mm -hmm. 
It also reminds me a little bit because of the like, you know, like the quote unquote humanitarianism for these, you know, families or children. I mean, obviously a lot of it has to do with organization of labor, but I was thinking about the photographer, Jacob Reese, mm -hmm. you know, how the other half lives. If anybody wants to, you know, look at that book, I think you can find it. It's quite, quite easily. Um, you know, they called it like pioneer photography, but like the importance of it, I think visually, because it was right in that exact time period was that he was basically providing proof of like the social conditions of the time being unfit particularly working conditions since there were a lot of working children and the large families. And I'm just curious if it was like a general movement at that time. It, it was very much, it was very much a movement to have society see what's really going on and to respond to it. Mm -hmm. um, the, the history of these organizations and the orphan train uh, movement itself, um, both Brace and Sister Mary Irene Fitzgibbon, who founded the Foundling Home, they were very politically aware, very politically connected. Mm -hmm. So, for example, one of the leaders in uh, developing systems for taking care of these underprivileged children was Theodore Roosevelt's father. Um, and the state of New York developed a system which essentially accredited these agencies and provided funds to these agencies. Um, but at the same time, there were people that were very strongly opposed to the idea of these agencies intervening. They yeah. saw it as essentially, um, we're making it easy for women to not be virtuous. They can have children outside of marriage and then someone else will take care of them. So there was also very much opposition in terms of some people felt like we were rewarding vice by taking care of the children. And, you know, we still hear some remnants of that in our culture today. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I wonder, I wonder if the flip side of that, if, if there were people that were opposed to it, as it was like developing at the, you know, kind of uh, chronologically at the same time as eugenics as well, you'd think that that would come into the picture, given that it's very specific to, you know, a, a group of people. It It's and related to what you just said. You know, it's easy to look back and, you know, you can question how effective the ideas were but it's very easy to see that there were good intentions here of people trying to save children and trying to send them to a, you know, a better life. Um, but politically, many states were very much opposed to having these vagrant children, undesirables coming into their states. And one of the things that led to the end of the orphan trains was states were banning, um, you know, the trains bringing children into their states. Oh, really? What states primarily, it was uh, Midwestern states primarily? Primarily, the, the majority of kids from New York were sent west. Uh, so there are large numbers in um Indiana, Illinois, um, Wisconsin, Missouri, Minnesota, Iowa, Kansas. Uh, mm -hmm. But at various times, the trains also went south. There is the foundling sent quite a number of children to Louisiana. Um, Texas also received some. Some went as far as New Mexico and Arizona. Um, there is some fascinating history that in Arizona, there were some great conflicts related to orphan trains where the foundling placed some children with Catholic um, Mexican families and some, I, I guess I would just call them white families, uh, went and took the children away from the Mexican families because they saw that as an undesirable placement. Um, and, and 
you know, there was a lot of violence and conflict even related to some of this. Oh, interesting. And I, uh, my understanding is that some of the children were adopted, but that some of them remained like indentured. Is that correct? Yes, the majority of kids were what is called indentured, which meant that they were placed with the family. There was a written agreement that the family would provide for the children, raise the children as their own, uh, have the children work on the farm just like the other kids in the family did. And at the age of 18, they would be given a sum of money and be prepared to go out on their own. Um, it's interesting that the foundling home initially discouraged formal adoption. And one of the reasons for that was they wanted to be able to remove the child from the family if the placement was not working. So mm -hmm. that the foundling technically retained some legal control of the child. Um, now, I know in my, my grandfather's own case, he was never formally adopted, but I have uh, a letter from the parish priest at the time where he was asking the director of the foundling, would it be okay if families adopted some of the children who came on the train? Um, the Children's Aid Society also used a similar indenture process, but more children uh, who came through that agency were adopted. Mm -hmm. So for your grandfather, it played out that he was not officially adopted, but it sounds like he took the name of the family and was, he, they incorporated him into the family? He was definitely incorporated into the family. He, he came to a family that already had nine children. Wow. Uh, so it was a large family. Um, uh, family of German immigrants. So it's interesting, the first language he was exposed to when he got to Missouri was German. Oh, the wow. entire community primarily spoke German. Um, so there were a number of kids from the family who then had to learn a new language when they got off the train. That's amazing. Um, the, the family also took in another child, not from the orphan train. And I don't know really what that story is, but they essentially adopted another uh, young man as well. And your grandfather, you said, remained very close with, was it one of his sisters? He, he was very close with one of his sisters um, that after he returned from World War I, and when he first moved out of the large family farm, the family home, he... Um, shared a home with his sister and her new husband. Um, so he still had connections to the family. Um, I, I had heard stories that growing up, he sort of hung on to um, the name his birth mother had given him. Uh, it was a family name that was made up, but he did not know that. So he had been given an alias when he was born. Um, but I had heard stories that at one point he went back to New York and he was upset by what he discovered there. And he came back and he declared to the rest of the family that, no, he is a Markway. That's who he is. Oh, that's very fascinating. Yeah, because I was curious, like for you, you know, the Markway family versus, you say it was the Doyle family. Like, what was the impact for you, like, on your own identity, even prior to you, like, researching the history? Did you feel like that, like, there was any it, tension there? I I did. It's, um, I, I guess a few things when I look back are really interesting to me. Okay, I'm a psychologist, and in my research work in graduate school, I focused on identity development. How do people get a sense of who they are and what does that mean to them? Yeah. I always had that as an interest and I was always attracted early in my career to working with foster kids. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, family therapy was my favorite thing to do. Um, and I also found myself, I was uh, when I met other 
adults who were adopted, I, I found myself just very attracted to knowing more about them. Um, and I think it's, it's interesting because where I live, okay, it's a, it's a relatively small community and the Markway name is really common here. As I mentioned, my grandfather came into a family with many children and most of them had many children. Yeah. Uh, so my, the, the Markway surname is fairly common here, like nowhere else, but it's fairly common <laughs> here. Um, and, but I was very aware that I wasn't really connected to the other people who had the same name that I did. Um, it's like somehow we were on the periphery of the family and it, yeah. you know, it wasn't anything that anybody else did. It's just how things were. Yeah. And after your discovery, after you had done the like historical research, did it, did anything change for you? Like, yeah, after I did the research, um, okay, okay. As, as I was first starting to find answers, I it was in 2017, I first felt it was like an overwhelming need to find answers. I can't explain why exactly at that time. Um, I'd gone through some changes in my own life. I'd moved to a new place. Um, and I guess I'd start seeing the ads on TV about, uh, you know, I thought I was Scottish. Now I found out I'm English or whatever right. the ads were. Right. And it just struck me all of a sudden that I may be able to find an answer now. I, I started reading up yeah. on DNA testing and I, you know, I saw it could be possible, but I also saw that I needed to do it soon because it was going to get more difficult you know, if it had to go down to another generation or two, it may yeah. become impossible. Um, I I also was able to discover uh, the name of his father, um, which in in some ways that was easier because I found DNA connections on that side of the family. Um, but things that did change for me, I. I sort of felt like I was doing it for my grandfather at one point. I had no idea he already had found the answer himself. Yeah. But I felt like, okay, now there's this technology. Now there's so many things online. I can find an answer. And I almost felt like I was doing it as a gift for him. Yes. Um, and, and in a sense, for the rest of my family. Um, I, I became obsessed in looking for the answer. And mm -hmm. then when I... When I first, you know, had the realization that I had found his mother, um, I I can't fully explain the feeling, but there was such a feeling of happiness and relief. Um, and when I first saw her name on my computer screen, I uh, I was a bit teary. Yeah. Because it's, yeah. it's like I put so much work into this and I found an answer, something I knew he had wanted. Um, but one of the bizarre twists in all of this, um, at, at that period of time, I was living in St. Louis. I had grown up in Jefferson City, which is about two hours away in central Missouri. I was living in St. Louis on the eastern side of the state. And I started finding some information of a connection through the Doyle family. I, it was bizarre to me because I was finding these descendants of Abby Doyle and they were going to the same high school I had gone to in Jefferson City. That's so far so out, yeah. It, and it turns out that, okay, I'm a great grandson of Abby Doyle. It turns out that she had another grandson who had eventually or great-grandson who had moved to Jefferson City and the family had gone to the same church I grew up in, kids going to the same high school. And when I started researching that family more, I realized I knew who this half-second cousin was. I'd never met him, but I knew who he was. That is so amazing. Um, it's like, so, like the it's like kismet of how families like 
you know, cross over. It's so, so fascinating. So was this cousin, I'm, I'm taking it that she had children later and they remained with her, is that? Yes, uh, my great-grandma Abby, um, a um, couple years after having my grandfather, um, she married and um, it, I've been able to piece together the story of how they met and I've confirmed this with, you know, other family members uh, who know the story, but she was very musically inclined and supposedly had a great singing voice. Mm -hmm. And she was singing in the church choir and they brought in a new director who had done something with the Boston Symphony and he directed the musical part of the church service for Christmas Eve and she was in that and that's how they met. She eventually married him <laughs> and he was from Boston, but then they moved to New York together uh, where he was an attorney and he had served as a state senator in Massachusetts before meeting her and the cousin who lived in Jefferson City, he was a state senator in wow. Missouri. And that's how I recognized his name when I found out who he was. Wow. So, so amazing. I'm curious about, um, well, I, I originally thought of this in relationship to the orphan train and of, you know, your grandfather being born in New York and then being taken to Missouri. And, and you said that your, his mother went back and forth between Massachusetts and New York. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. I just, the thought that I've had, and part of this is related to my own history. So this is how it came up, but just the idea, like there's something very, you know, like Proustian about the idea of, you know, of a place where you're from, but you've never really been there. Like you're not, you've never been from there. And like, I just, and sort of like the idea of home and how does that, how does that intersect with kinship for you, for you, for your grandfather? If, I mean, that's kind of projecting, but for, for you, like the idea of being relocated to a place that's separate from one's origin, you know, and is that like really possible? Like, what is that effect on you? Like psychologically, really? It's, I, I do believe there's something to where you're from, even going back generations. Um, okay, I I grew up in a town of about 40,000 people. It's a state capital, but it's not large. And I always had a desire to live in a bigger city. Um, I did my internship in Philadelphia. Um, mm -hmm where my great-grandfather used to live. And in fact, he was buried about uh, three miles from the hospital where I'd worked there. Oh, interesting, so amazing. And it's like, I, I spent a lot of time in New York visiting. Um, and my the person I consider my best friend, he's from New York, <laughs> New York City. Um, so it's like, I've always felt a connection there, not mm -hmm. that I necessarily wanted to live there and stay there, but I always felt just some kind of connection that I couldn't explain. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, I guess I also knew that my grandfather had come from New York originally, but yeah. I didn't give it a lot of thought, you know, in my 20s and 30s. It only came back to me later. Um, but I, I, I've since discovered you know, I didn't know this till the last few years that my grandfather had gone to New York many times. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, knowing that he went back there seeking his own mother, you know, it's like, it, it's not like back then you could just hop on a plane and be there to, yeah, you know, in two right, hours. Right. It's like, it was an ordeal to get there. Um, and I know he went back there at least twice uh, seeking information. Um, so it's, and I, and I guess, uh, for me, I, in some ways I've always felt like I came from somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, I was, 
you know, I'm from a family with five kids. I was the only one that was born in St. Louis. And, and it's like, I always wanted to go back there. I went back there for college. I went there for graduate school. Uh, then I wanted to go to the East Coast. So I did my internship in Philadelphia and I, you know, found a best friend who was from New York City. Uh, my best friend in college was from New York City. I, it, it just, there's a pattern that um, yeah, absolutely. I think about that for people with this kind of history, you know, whether it's adoption or, you know, a family history of of being, you know, separated from place. I just wonder, you know, it, for myself, I always think about like, what's your sense of home? You know, what is your sense of place? You know, and how is that related to, you know, where you come from? I mean, it's very, it's a it, curious it, idea. And, and talking about, um, sense of home, you know, where is that place? Um, in 2019, it was the 150th anniversary of the New York family home. And um, I spoke at their anniversary event. And it was somewhat out of character for me, but I contacted them and I really pushed to um, speak at the event. And I just felt like I had, there was something that I needed to say. And it, it was for me as much as for anybody else. And when I spoke, I, I spent more time working on that 20 minute speech than anything I'd ever done in my life. Mm -hmm. And after that, I was so drained, but so happy. Yeah. And I also, while after doing that, I had so many people coming up to me and telling me that they'd had the exact same experience that I did. There were so many orphan trained descendants at this event. And as part of that, I started helping other people find out where their ancestors had come from. And I now run a Facebook group called Orphan Trained DNA where I trained people how to do the same thing that I did. And I find, I don't know, I, I have so many connections now uh, through doing this work. And it's there's something empowering about finding out how many people are trying to do the exact same thing I did, that there was nothing unique in my experience, but there's just something in human nature that we want to know where we came from. Yeah. Yeah, that's so generous of you to do that. And I wonder, like, do you, have you uh, encountered anybody that that is related to you in that work? I haven't encountered people related to me in doing the DNA orphan train research. Um, but I have met with some other family you know, distant relatives that I met through this. I've met people on my grandfather's paternal side. Um, and it's it's funny. One of the things I've come out of this is like, you know, I, I almost feel like um, family genetics. It's like we're, we're like dandelion seeds that get blown in the wind <laughs> and we end up all over the place. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, you know, I've, I've met people, it's like I definitely feel like we're family because we think alike, our political, social views of the world are similar. I've met others that it's like if they weren't family, I probably never would have spoken with them. <laughs> um, but they're, you know, it's like we all come from, we can all come from the same place and we can end up very different based on what our life experiences are, what we're exposed to. Um, but I, I still feel such a connection to the orphan train things. I'm going to be speaking at the National Orphan Train Museum's uh, annual event this summer. And there are people I'm going to be meeting there that I've only met online and we've already made arrangements to get together. And there is something about just having that commonality of experience of having sort of come from a secret of some type. Yes. Yes. 
I mean, that's true. I mean, for uh, people like me with the, you know, um, non-paternity event, um, I think that's very true. Like, that is where, you know, you find most of your comfort from those people that have had the same experience that you have. I'm not on social media by at all, but it probably would be helpful. I mean, I'm sure you're, I'd be very curious to see the, your uh, Facebook page. It's, yeah, the, the orphan train group, it's interesting because the first person I met through this and she now helps me with the group, she lives in Australia and she, but she grew up in Iowa and she had kind of a funny story of her mom's experience. Her mom in a small town in Iowa, there were other people who kept confusing her mom with the one known Jewish woman in town. <laughs> and her mom was getting very upset by this initially. And now my friend, this woman's daughter, uh, took a DNA test and it showed a high percentage of Ashkenazi, right. you know, Jewish DNA in her yeah. history. And this woman has now tracked down her mother's ancestors and now they're all from New York and, you know, a high percentage of descendants of the orphan train, it's like their ancestors were recent immigrants. Mm -hmm. um, they were impoverished. And I believe in my own great grandmother's case, it's like she essentially had to give up the child because a single female could not support a child at yeah. that time. Yes. Yeah, the social support definitely wasn't there. In some cases, it's still not, <laughs> depending upon your like SES in this country right now. But yeah. yeah, yeah, that's so difficult because she was faced with like a no choice, basically. Yeah. Well, yeah, and essentially, you know, the sort of work that most you know single women could get at the time would be as a teacher, mm -hmm. where you weren't allowed to have a child or to be married. Mm -hmm. Uh, or you could be a servant where you can't bring your child into the home where you're a servant. Um, or uh, the nursing profession was beginning. Mm -hmm. But again, it's like who would take care of your child during the day? And how right. much money would you make to be able to you know, pay for child care? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so many nuances. I know. I mean, I think it was intact. I was thinking about the children at that time that worked in factories and everything, but I'm fairly certain those were intact families, like intact, whatever that means. But, you know, had a, you know, like living in the tenements, large families with children where the every everyone is working outside of the home. But I, you're right. I don't see how that would have been possible for a single woman at that time. Yeah. Particularly yeah. since the child is going to be able to work until it's what five. I don't know. <laughs> I'm yeah. not sure how early that started. Yeah, yeah. But again, you know, New York back at the time, there were a lot of children working on the streets. You know, selling yeah. newspapers, um, doing various things. It was very competitive for the kids trying to make money, and then the people who, you know, were essentially giving them work would take a, you know a lot off the top of whatever the kid brought in. Yeah. So it's like, you know, the kids are basically just trying to earn enough to buy food. Yeah. It's incredible. So in terms of like your experience, do you have anything, to, you know, anything to say to people who like how this impacts like your idea of kinship in any way or your idea of your idea of family? I think it's, you know, as I said before, I didn't feel strongly connected to the extended Markway family. And part of that, you know, probably is because my father didn't either. So it's not like my father had some connection, but sort of growing up, I didn't even know who these other people were that he was connected to. We didn't see see them on a regular basis. Um, you know, it's just kind of like they were out there, but in the distance, we're on the periphery. Um, but I think it's it's interesting because there is something about the DNA connection, at least for me. It may be different depending on what other people's experience has been. But I know for me, when when I first reached out to my half-second cousin who was living in the community where I grew up, um, 
I sent a very carefully constructed email and I'd also, since he had lived in the community where I had grown up, I gave him a list of references if you wanted to check me out and check out my story, whether it may be true or not. Um, and I'd seen on his Facebook that we did have some common connections of people that we knew. But there was something about when he first replied and he basically acknowledged that he believed my story. There was something in that acceptance that was just so meaningful to me that, mm -hmm. you know, it. I guess in a sense it touched my soul. It went, yeah, yeah. It went beyond my brain. It went much yes. deeper. Mm -hmm. And and he promptly gave me a phone number and said, you know, call me as soon as you can. And again, it's it's funny because I haven't even actually met him because before I moved back to Jefferson City, he moved to Florida, so we've just oh. missed each other. But we're you know we're we stay in touch. We're at least having known occasional email or something. Um, and. I was able to tell him things about his ancestors that he didn't know, and some members of his family have now gotten into genealogy. And I think it's like there's something about this whole story because when I look back, it's it's like everybody's story is kind of understandable. You know, Abby grew up in poverty; she found herself pregnant, and she probably didn't know what to do. Um, and sort of like, you know, thank God the family home existed because that gave her, you know, a place to take my grandfather, a place where she could believe that he would be cared for. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, but there, there is just something I feel connection to this extended family of people that I've never met. Yes. Um, but somehow we have some shared bond, some shared experience. And there's other members of the family that I communicate with now on at least a semi-regular basis. Um, and it's, I don't know, there's just, I can't fully put into words, but there's a connection that I feel with my DNA relatives. Yeah, I mean, I think that connection goes really, really deep. I'm, uh anybody that would listen to this would probably say the same thing because we all kind of have that same experience, you know? Yeah. I wonder about, um, in terms of your grand grandfather, like as a, how do you think, or, you know, obviously this is just your perception, but how do you think that it impacted him as like a father and a grandfather? It, Okay, I think in different ways, because I think based on my memory of him from when I was a child, he was he was the ideal grandfather. And mm -hmm. you know, I know it's like he was funny. Um, he was fun. He was very attentive. He came to every one of my Little League baseball games. So um, I just knew he was going to be there. Yeah. Um, he, now, you know, there's always a difference between a grandparent and a parent. Right. And I, I don't know exactly what he was like with my father growing up. My father was the oldest child. Mm -hmm. Um, I know they had some differences, but I also know that they got along. It's like my grandfather came to our home like every Tuesday night. You know, mm -hmm. it was just a regular family get together. Um, but I, you know, looking back and being a psychologist, there are certain things I see because I, I know my grandfather in some ways endured some trauma. He was also in World War One. Um, I'm by far the youngest in my family. My grandfather used to talk more to one of my brothers who was named after him. So I think they had a a special bond. Yeah. Um, but I know my grandfather sometimes would start to talk about some things from the past. And he did mention his mother's name once to my brother. I later found out I wanted to strangle my brother. Why didn't you ever tell me this before you did all this work? Um, but um, 
my brother said he was very, you know, he would talk about his experience of wondering about his mother, but then he would just stop talking. Or he would talk about his experience in World War One, and then he would just stop talking. And it's, you know, it's, you know, I'm looking back, I'm seeing a guy who started to reveal something about himself and then started thinking, okay, my grandson doesn't need to hear this. I don't need to traumatize my grandson with my own past. Yeah. Um, but it's, as I said before, I think my grandfather struggled with the fact that he was left at the foundling home. Um, you know, I sort of imagine him wondering what's wrong with me that I, that my mother abandoned me. Yeah. Um, but my grandfather also had a unique experience with the orphan train compared to many people in that he was, you know, taken in by a family in a very small town. You know, it was probably only, you know, a hundred and some people at the time. But there were over 30 kids taken into the same basic community at one time. And they all went to school together. They all went to church together. So every one of them knew that they had come off the orphan train, which a lot of other places the kids didn't know because sure. it was the secret. Yeah. So he grew up with a different kind of support group um, than many kids who came off the orphan train. But I think, I guess, you no. Know, Looking back, um, you know, I think trauma somehow gets passed down. And I, and I, but I also emphasize, I think every family has trauma. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, we all, life is hard. We all cope with it as best we can. And I think my grandfather struggled with that, but he also married into a relatively prominent family in town. Mm -hmm. um, he was very successful as a young man in business. He had his own car dealership. He was making very good money, but then he had the trauma of the depression where he lost everything. Mm -hmm. um, but he wasn't alone in that. Um, but I, I guess what I'm saying is like, I think he, he went through all sorts of things that in a sense, everyone goes through, but you add on top of that, that he had this unknown past that right. he clearly was struggling with. Uh, on his World War I draft card, the first time he had to register, he listed his place of birth as unknown. Oh, interesting. And that struck me because he knew he was from New York. Well, and the, I, and the, the symbolism of that is pretty amazing, actually. Yeah. Right? Especially was, like under the auspice of you, you know, being adopted and feeling that sense of abandonment. Uh, yeah, he, I think he felt like where he came from was unknown. Yeah. Um, but he, it's interesting because he developed very close friendships growing up. Um, and he, he went to war with one of his close friends. Um, and it, it's like, so I don't know, he had these really strong bonds uh, but I think the strongest ones were with people who could understand what he'd been through. Yeah, right. Shared experience. That makes sense. You said at some point, or maybe I read this on your blog, that he, um, just in talking about the idea of like intergenerational trauma and everything, that it, um, you becoming a, a psychologist was sort of like out of not typical like for your family, but that your grandfather had had like Freud on his bookshelf. Um, I'm curious about that just because, you know, the role that Freud played in the idea of the, you know, the importance of the mother and the father, particularly in the life of the infant. It, yeah, I, um, when I decided to be a psychologist, my father thought that was, I'm not sure if I want to say craziest, dumbest, uh, whatever <laughs> pejorative term I want to use, my, right. my father's thought it. He, my father could not relate to that mm -hmm. at all. Um, um, although I'd also say I probably came to this partly because of my father, who is very much focused on social justice and wanting mm -hmm. to help people. And that's what, you know, made you a valuable person was to be of service. So it fit perfectly well for me in terms of 
the attitudes I grew up with. Sure. Yeah. But at a later time, my father mentioned that my grandfather had read Freud, which I that that blew my mind because my grandfather, as I knew of him, he spent most of his career as a mechanic and a carpenter. He was very good with his hands. He was, mm -hmm. you know, um, so, but hearing that, it's like, okay, that suggested uh, that my grandfather had a very active internal life. If right. he's reading Freud in the early 1900s, um, because, you know, especially in a relatively rural area of Missouri. This is yeah. not uh, this is not New York City where perhaps, you know, that's the latest thing is, you know, physicians becoming psychoanalysts. Right. Um, you know, my and I, I do. I've thought of that, that. My grandfather was probably trying to understand his own experience. Yeah. Um, it, as a psychologist, I've done a little bit of everything. I. Um, Okay, my first job out of school, I worked in the uh, St. Louis Juvenile Court, working with the uh, um, abused and delinquent kids, and also some work with foster care and adoption. Um, yeah. And I, okay, I partly went into that work because it was a job that was readily available, and um, my internship had been focused on um, um, children who are committed to a hospital based upon um, their interactions with the juvenile court system. So I, I developed some expertise in that. And then I went on to, I've kind of done a little bit of everything from health psychology to more traditional psychotherapy. And I, over time, I've gotten more into doing work in uh, forensic psychology. So now I do evaluations for the court. Mm -hmm. um, I, I tend to get bored if I stick with one thing too too long. Right. So I, uh, I'm always wanting to learn something new. Yeah, and that's funny though that you've been drawn to that particular area like from the beginning because it's all related, all the way up it, to the it, forensic it, stuff. That's it, amazing. It is because one of the my work in forensics, um, and I've also helped with training of up and coming psychologists, but my work in forensics, I feel like part of what I bring to it is even if somebody has committed a horrible crime, I still bring some compassion as to how did the person end up in the spot where they did this. Right. And so I, you know, I see a lot of people who have tremendous amounts of trauma mm -hmm. and that doesn't, um, you know, excuse or take away their responsibility for what they have done. However, I think having some understanding of that can affect how as an evaluator or as a therapist, how we interact with that person. And by showing some compassion and understanding, it may have an impact on how open they are in telling us about both their behavior as well as their overall experience. Right. That's like the most humane way to talk about it, I think. Yeah, I I hope that I bring a sense of humanity to my work, even though a lot of what I do is stuff that I can't talk about anywhere else. Right. Uh, I should say that Greg and I work in the same area, so <laughs> we kind of have a we're kind of kindred in that in that way. Um, yeah. yeah. So. Just to wrap things up, I wonder if you could share um, like where we could find any of your work. You said you're going to speak at the National um, Orphan Train Annual Event this summer. Is there a date? Is it going to be available online? It's. I, I don't know if it's going to be online or not. There's been some discussion of that. I don't know. It, the Orphan Train Museum is in Concordia, Kansas, and I'm going to be talking on using DNA to trace your ancestry. Oh, great. And information on that by going to orphantraindepot.org, I believe it is. Okay. Uh, or just search National Orphan Train Museum. Okay. Um, the I also have a blog where I write and um, 
you can go to uh, Markway, markwayblog.com, and it's M-A-R-K-W-A-Y blog.com. Um, and if anyone listening has any connection to Orphan Train, feel free to connect with me at the Orphan Train DNA group on Facebook. And one thing I want to mention here at the end is the Orphan Train movement is such a hidden bit of American history. Um, and I've seen various estimates. Um, you know, there, there's a pretty reliable estimate that approximately 250,000 kids rode the orphan train, uh, you know, to new families. Yeah. And I've heard various estimates. Um, I've seen estimates higher than this, but I've uh, I've seen estimates between 10 and 30 million uh, Americans right now are descendants of orphan train riders. And many of them don't even know it. As I said, I, I knew nothing about the orphan train movement. But as I think back, as I was thinking back about this in speaking to you and looking at your blog, when, when my children were young, um, my we really in we really like Woody Guthrie. And there is a song that he wrote that they made into a children's book, which is very lighthearted. And I always thought sort of a strange book called The New Baby Train. Do you know this book or song? Yes, yes. It's there, so, there. I went out and dug it. I actually went and dug it out after I talked to you because I was like so flabbergasted by the connection. It was, it's amazing. It's, there are, there are so many connections. There are novels, there are movies. Mm -hmm. And they don't all have the title Orphan Train, uh, although one novel I know of does. Um, but many of them have the Orphan Train as just part of the story. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot, there's an Orphan Train mythology of where the Orphan Train was wonderful, look how all these children were mm -hmm. saved. Then there's another mythology, all the children were taken advantage of and abused. And of course, the truth is somewhere in the middle. Some kids were abused, as you can imagine, just putting kids on a train and dropping them off and giving them to a new family. Even if that family has been supposedly vetted, you know, we just know that there are gonna be times where that did not turn out well. Right. Um, but there are other times where people had wonderful experiences. Um, and, you know, I've seen in my own community of, you know, roughly 36 kids dropped off here in 1901. I have, um, one thing I've been doing, it's kind of a hobby and part of my just general history interest. I've been trying to track down what happened to all those kids and, and their families. And what I've seen so far is there is a variety. Um, you know, some grew up to be incredibly successful, however you want to measure that. And other ones struggled. Um, and for whatever reason, you know, it's just sort of like the broad spectrum of human experience and the broad spectrum of outcomes. Um, but I do know that my, even though my grandfather had some traumas, he he came out of it as a good person and as a wonderful grandfather. And, you know, as far as his descendants go, it's like we've had a very fortunate life. And we do credit part of that to the foundling home. Sure. I can totally understand that. Yeah. Everything has a everything has a history. Yeah. <laughs> even, if it's, even if it's very complicated. Yeah. Yeah, and it usually is. Yeah, yeah. Always, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you talking to me. What I'm going to do is on the episode notes, I'll put your contact, your Facebook site, your website, blog. Um, and then I'll watch the... Um, I'll watch the Orphan Train Depot site, and hopefully they'll make your, uh, your talk available to everybody because it would be really good to, to get that out there. 
Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. I know it's like the middle of the week, all kinds of things going on. So it was nice of you to make time. Oh, well, thank you very much for having me. I've, I've enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, me too. And I'll be looking out for your book. Okay. <laughs> no pressure, no pressure. Okay. <laughs> okay. Take care, Greg. Okay. Goodbye. Bye-bye. This has been Unfinished Truths, stories of new kinships and the truths they reveal. If you would like to share your story with me, please email unfinishedtruths at gmail.com or visit the WordPress website linked on your podcast platform. Everyone has a story to tell. Thank you for listening.